Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 platinum jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of The Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as Prime Minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. must go on. I can't go on. You must go on. I'll go on. You must say words as long as there are any until they find me, until they say me. Strange pain, strange sin. You must go on. Perhaps it's done already. Perhaps they have set me already. Perhaps they have carried me to the threshold of my story before the door that opens on my story. That would surprise me. If it opens, it would be I. It would be the silence where I am. I don't know. I never know. In the silence, you don't know. You must go on. I can't go on. I'll go on. Well, who knew Harold Pinter would launch his own <laughs> podcast? <laughs> so, so that, in the future, everyone will be a mouth talking in the void. I can't go on. I'll go on. Hello, and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast which gives new life to old books. Today, you find me in the dark. I can't move. I'm curled up inside some kind of jar, dim, intermittent light. People pass before me. At least, I think they do. I can hear my own voice if it is my own voice, in the silence, if it is silence. All I can do is go on, but I can't go on. I must go on. I'll go on. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, <laughs> where people crowdfund the books they really want to read. I feel like you've desecrated something there. Well done. And I'm Andy Miller, the author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. Ah, oh, and I'm Nikki Birch, and I'm the editor of Backlisted. Hooray! And today's episode, which is our 199th is dedicated entirely to the work of one writer, and if you haven't already guessed, his name was Samuel Beckett. There are no guests uh, this time, but over the course of the next hour, the three of us will discuss, read from, and listen to five of Beckett's works that we feel give a representative sweep of his long career. And rather as we did with our episode on Graham Greene, We'll cover some of Beckett's writing that isn't as well known uh, and um, some of his writing that is extremely famous. Sean, when, where, how, why? (laughs) 
did you first encounter the writing of Samuel Beckett? Um, I was, I think I was actually 15, 16, but a teenager uh, in New Zealand at a school in, in Auckland. And I went to a brilliant production of Pratt's Last Tape and Not I at the at Theatre Corporate, a small theatre company in Auckland. And, I, you know, you, you have those moments in the theatre that, that completely transform the way you think about what's possible. Crap, obviously, one man and a tape machine. And we're going to be talking about mm-hmm. crap later on. Not I, a mouth, an illuminated mouth in the middle of a stage, uh, a monologue. Um, and I suppose after that, I, be, I was kind of, yeah, I was, I was hooked. And I, 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 I read as much about and by Beckett as I could. Uh, as we'll discover, some of that is quite difficult. Some of it is also incredibly powerful, okay. moving and funny. So as in our Graham Green episode, we, um, we have divided our, the roles three of us will play, <laughs> like a Beckett play. So John is the talking head in the dark. <laughs> the expert. The expert. Oh, Lord, yes. Uh, I am someone who has read uh, the hits, uh, like such as Waiting for Godot and Crap's Last Tape, which I love, and um, The Unnameable, which we'll be talking about in a bit. And uh, Nikki is, uh, well, Nikki, how would you describe your role today? So honestly, if someone has used the phrase, that's very Beckettian, <laughs> I have no idea what that means. Uh-huh. Uh, prior now, prior, prior. Okay. to doing this, uh, obviously my extensive research um, for this, this episode, but I have, I have seen one Beckett play back in 1991. I saw Rick Mayle and Adrian Edmondson doing Waiting for God. Oh, nice though. Nice. Well, we'll, we must discuss that because I saw Syria McKellen and Patrick Stewart Ooh. doing Waiting for Godot. Wow. So, and I'm sure John has seen. Yeah, I mean, many. I think one of the one of the things about about Beckett is is that it's such an incredible, um, you know, the 20th century alone. The performances of, of Godot and the great plays is some of the greatest actors, obviously. So there's a, there's, there's a lot to choose from, and we have got some we we've got some nice clips as well to play because this is episode 199. Yeah, the three of us. Before we get on to Samuel Beckett, uh, Beckett is coming in. I reckon about five to ten minutes time. This is the first time the three of us have been in a room together for six months, and uh, we used to get together all the time, didn't we? And all then night, and then the pandemic happened, yeah. and we just. We're like a band in the late stages of its career where one of them moves to America and has to fly in for rehearsals. That's you. That's me, yeah, right? So um, we wanted to talk a little bit first about how it feels after eight years to have made 200 episodes of this podcast. And John has chosen five magnificent examples of Beckett's work, five texts. And I have laboriously worked <laughs> out how each one of them connects to Brilliant. a different moment in backlisted Brilliant. history. Right. So if you'll if you'll um, indulge us as we indulge ourselves a bit, John, I was thinking about on the way down here today. What would you have done with the last eight years <laughs> if you hadn't been making this? No, it's less bit, reading. Yeah, how, and how F- fewer books for sure. In fact, I, I, I genuinely think I've, it's completely changed the way I look at the history of literature now. I feel like I've had a, a massive kind of blood transfusion, you know, and I, I, I've ended up with a different perspective on, not just on, on writing, but on the way, the, the kind of the canon, the, the whole relationship between, between a writer's work and their, and their life, 
it's been it's been one of the one of the most formative important experiences of my life I, have to say. I I feel exactly the same way I mean I feel like um listeners have been terribly patient as they heard yeah. us learn on the job <laughs> not just make the sh- how to make mm. the shows but actually when I consider some of the subjects authors or books that we've taken on we had that kind of fearlessness that came from we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know what we were letting ourselves in for. The fact that we feel confident enough to sit here and have a three-way discussion of Samuel Beckett Which I can't today. believe I'm involved in. <laughs> well, that's all part of the fun of it, right? That's the energy of it. So, I, John, I feel the impact on my reading, how I read, the way I read, has been changed forever by doing backlisted. Yeah. But my experience over the last year or so is also that it has changed the way I write completely. Yeah. In what way? I feel the benefit of having read approximately a thousand and a half books in the time we've yeah. been doing this podcast. It's not really that difficult. If you read week in, week out, it, it, some of the greatest exponents of the written word, you pick up a few tips. Yep. I, 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 that's a really yeah. good point. I mean, I think it seeps into your sense of, um, of of pace and tone, and no doubt, I feel I'm a much better writer than I was eight years ago. Nikki, though, right? You you joined us how many yeah. years in? I'm like the Ronnie Wood. I was just thinking, yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking in so many ways, in so many ways. Um, when you did you join us after three years in? Yes, you, you've been that's with right. us five years. Five years. How has this changed? your life or hasn't it? Oh no, I think it has. I, actually, my partner was laughing at me last week saying, I can't believe you're watching Crap's last take in the bath. <laughs> I mean, Good. That's a transformation. No, but I mean, in, in all seriousness, I was a reader as a child and a teenager and I stopped reading. Stopped not kind of completely, but nowhere near the amount, that I, amount, the amount of pleasure I get out of it now. So transformational in that, but also I... And now will approach books that I never would because I want to be part of the conversation on Backlisted. I also have very much you in my mind, Andy, which is finish the book. Sorry. No, but mm. it, it really helps. And so sometimes it's a struggle, but I will always finish the book. And I really, I really enjoy that. Do you know what I mean? I, and I will plow mm. through books that I find difficult. And I also, you know, and I approach it. And I know sometimes I find it easier to listen because that's sometimes well, certain books are easier listening, but but it's completely changed what I read and it's completely changed my ability to talk about things. I don't, wouldn't have had the confidence to talk that's about yeah, them that either. Is, that's, that is really interesting. One of, one of my, um, yeah, one of the other things I feel that I've, I have, have had confirmed by the experience of being involved with Backlisted is I can remember, I, I'm sure I've said this on, on the podcast before, but I can remember Salman Rushdie saying once, you know, you have to get out of this trap of thinking the world is full of bad books that have been written to waste your time. It's just not true. That There are very few great books and there are very few really bad books and there are an awful lot of good books. Books that if you read them with an open mind, you'll take something away from. You, you know? know, and that is one of the beautiful things about this, isn't it? That there are books that you guys have talked about on this show, which um, maybe we'll come on to, to, to in a quiz later in the, in Let's this show so. to to sort of showcase some of those old books, but um, that you have perhaps not always liked retrospectively, but you have found something in all of them so that has value 
and 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 you've been positive and and really made people feel like this is the great thing about this book. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I think that's so it's the passion and energy and enthusiasm that you both yeah, show yeah. for books. Well, is John, don't, so appealing. You, don't I think one of the misconceptions about Backlisted is that we're here to sell books. I mean, we are we like selling books, especially through the bookshop.org, because <laughs> that helps us keep going. And but yeah. but, but we were we were doing an interview last week and we were talking about on that, weren't we, with Eric? We were I, we were saying on that. I know it's a good show when I get to the end and think, brilliant. People who hear this are going to read this book. Not read, buy this book. Read it. Not yeah, buy yeah. this but book. I think read this book. You yeah. know? And I think that, that process of us, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing to have to, um, to have to get your thoughts into some kind of order and to communicate those, hopefully, you know, kind of cogently. That's not how a lot of people read, you know? It's not how I read. You know, I was, used to do, do that, I suppose, when I was a student. But unless you're reviewing a book, you know, you read and you go on to the next one. But what I've really, what I've really welcomed is that added layer of trying to think about how you communicate what you've read, what the impact the book has had on you, um, why it might be of interest to other people. And I, I think that, in a, in a way, I almost feel that is habit forming. I, I read, as you say, differently and I write differently. But I also think differently now when I'm, when I'm reading a book, I think there's, I'm, I'm, I'm also at the same time wondering what I'm going to say about it. So, Well, you know, let's make 200 more of these. <laughs> I suppose. Yeah. It, well, we're never going to run I'll out. Go, I'll we go are, on. We, we, I'll go on. I can't go <laughs> on. I'll yeah, go, go on. on. No, but it is thanks to people listening, isn't it, that we've carried on and therefore we've got oh, I mean, great benefit no, the, the, of being able to read and enjoy amazing, all these books. Amazing group what? of listeners. I people, love the, the... People listen to this. <laughs> what? <laughs> I thought this was just... For fun, the, um, it's such a you know the, the Patreon community is they're incredible people they're, they're very very it's very um, reassuring very very okay. very positive. Before we move on to the main event, yeah. then, I want you to think for a moment. I'm, I will I will go first to give you some thinking time. Um, which one book doesn't have to be the subject of an episode? To which one book that you wouldn't have read? if it wasn't for doing this, is the book you will take away. When you think about Backlisted, what is the book you think of? What's the book that springs to mind? Shall I go first? Go on. I don't think I would have read, I mean, there are books that I've enjoyed more, but I don't think I would have read Something Happened by Joseph Heller, which I can still feel the, the, in the pit of my stomach, the excitement of thinking that that book is still on the shelves of bookshops, as I said in the show at the time. And I can remember, was it, I think you, John, reading something from it near the end of the recording and there being an almost hysterical sense of how transgressive it was, how funny, how brilliant and how alive, how alive, what an extraordinary thing a book is when it, when it lifts up off the page like that. So I think Something Happened by Joseph Heller is probably mine, even though there are books that I might more enjoy, more got more out of intellect. I it's don't know. It's just that that's the lightning struck for me there. That is, it's, I mean, it's a very tricky question, I have to say. I mean, there are so many that I could, you know, off the top of my head. You've got to choose one. <laughs> yeah, I, I, know I, know, I know I've got to choose one. I will choose one. I think 
Was it lightning rods? (laughs) (laughs) It was lightning rods. No further questions. Um, I I think that now I probably I've got to choose one and I've got to make it. You know what? You know what? I think (laughs) this is actually I think I think hilarious to watch. Oisman's. I think Arab. I don't think I'd have ever read that book if we hadn't done it. And now it's a book that I I think about. I'm, I probably think about that book once a week. Against Nature by Against Hussman's. Nature by by by, um, by Hussman's. and it was just, it's that it, was a lovely episode. I, I mean, maybe there well. was a bit of that that we were doing it in in in, in, Shakespeare, in, in, in Shakespeare and Company in Paris, but you know, I've read a lot. I've been turned on to you know a lot of amazing women writers through that list. Mm-hmm. But that that Same, that yeah. one Same. book, I mean, I can remember reading it and thinking, I can't believe I'm not. I, I, not only have I not read it, but I didn't know it was this good and this transgressive and this odd and mad. Nikki? I have got two. Sorry. Ah, uh, uh, well, go on. Then. Okay, because they both relate to me, they're ones I think about a lot. Maybe, again, not the best books of the ones, but I, so I also, I work at the BBC, and so the Human Voices one. By Penelope Fitzgerald. By Fitzgerald. Very good. Which is all about the BBC during the war. I think about that a lot when I'm at work. Does it yeah. still seem... In what way do you get? Do you go to work and think the the sort of fictional characters flit along the corridors? I think about mostly them sleeping there during the bombing raids, <laughs> and that sort of you know, I kind of think, mm. what was that like? And mm-hmm. I just imagine, and and one of the characters dies in a bomb, you know, around the corner, mm-hmm. and, I, and I can picture the street where it happened, and that just it just mm. feels very kind of connected to me. And then the second one, which also feels connected to me, is Full Tilt. Um, by Dervla Murphy, which is yeah, a cycling interesting. one. Right, okay. Um, because There's I cycle cycling. quite a lot, mm. but also the fact that she was just such this incredible machine and mm. she just mm. was an absolute legend. And I think about how she managed that and and I sort of aspire to be a, 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 a small amount of a cycling I, legend I, as she I, is. I aspire to her method of having her phone on for, what was it, like on a Wednesday morning yeah. at 5 a.m. <laughs> and that was it. Exactly. The, the rest of the time you couldn't get hold of her, which meant she could write instead. So. I don't think I would have read either of those books had it been not for Backlist. So that that I think I'm more mm. likely to pick up a book from the table at Waterstones. Mm. That would have been my kind of reading before Backlisted. And so now I'm, you know, I, I feel like I've got to the point where I'm reading books that actually connected me on a much greater level, thanks to you both. So mm. and, and well, the show. Not the show. That's great. So how we're going to run this is John has chosen five books plays, novels, collections of short stories, texts by Samuel Beckett for us. And he's going to uh, announce for us each one. And then I am going to offer my uh, interpretation of why he has chosen that book in relation to the history of Batlisted. So the first in our Beckett uh, series is an early essay, 1929. It appeared in a book that was dedicated to what was then known as work in progress. So it was called Our Exagermination Around His Factification for Incamination of Work in Progress. By? By. Uh, um, the Work in Progress was by James Joyce, and it was it, what, the book that became Finnegan's Wake. And it was published, this book was published by Shakespeare and Company. They used to call it Our Exag. And the first essay in it was an essay by precocious uh, young writer called Samuel Beckett, Dante Bruno, Vico Joyce. Right. Now, you've already mentioned one way that that ties in back into Battlefield, which is called Shakespeare and Company, bookshop in Paris. But also, I would go so far as to suggest 
John, that you chose that because on episodes three and four of that listed in the now defunct what I've been reading this week slots, eight years ago, I was reading about now in you fact, were. I was reading Finnegan's Wake. <laughs> you were. You were. Yeah, all still all have many pages it is. But you can hear me, you can go back into the archive at batlisted.fm and hear me talking about the experience of both reading and finishing Finnegan's Wake in episodes three and four devoted to David Nobbs and Nancy Mitford, respectively. And I also will go so far as to suggest the reason why John has chosen Beckett's essay on Finnegan's Wake by James Joyce is because several times over the years on Backlisted, we have announced an episode on James <laughs> Joyce <laughs> and Ulysses that has repeatedly, never done it. repeatedly failed to materialise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is a clear reference by John to Samuel Beckett's play, Waiting for Godot. <laughs> very, good, Thank very, you. Good. very good, Andy. That's, that's a, that's Gold star there. I think, I think that's a, I think that's brilliant. Uh, so the, the the reason I chose it is that every, every, the one thing I guess that people, if they know anything about Beckett, is that he worked as Joyce's secretary. He went to Paris. He he was a, he was an A grade student. I mean, he got a gold medal for modern languages from Trinity College Dublin, and went to teach in the École Normale Supérieure in Paris as uh, uh, t- t- teaching English. And this is in his 20s. In his 20s. So yeah. absolutely start. And he was introduced by his, the predecessor in his job as a guy called Thomas McGreevy, who introduced him to Joyce. Joyce got on extremely well with Becker and, and used him as a secretary. And two things came out of that. One, that Joyce's daughter, Lucia, fell in love with Beckett, and that was sort of non unrequited, which is problematic. And she later, I mean, that, that's a whole other story, yeah. <laughs> um, ended up in a in mental institution. But Beckett was heavily influenced by Joyce. And this group of essays was the first attempt critically to try and explain and defend Finnegan's Wake. So we should say at this point that Beckett as a pupil of Joyce, as Joyce's amanuensis Amanuensis. and pupil. What's amanuensis? Sort of secretary, taking notes, doing research. Was James Joyce's intern. Okay. Yeah, yeah, intern. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yes, okay. <laughs> well, well, th- we should say that Beckett was was thought to be a precociously talented as a reader and writer. He was he was perceived as someone who was going to do great things. Yeah, yeah. And his contemporaries and some of the older people around him felt as it happened, when it happened, that the worst thing he ever did was fall under the influence of James Joyce. Really fascinating. Because Joyce then, perhaps is not the Joyce we think of now. We struggle perhaps to understand portions of Finnegan's Wake nearly 100 years after it was composed. Imagine at the time (laughs) when it was being published in literary journals, imagine how offensively avant-garde it must have seemed to so many of its readers. And I love this essay, John. I've never read this essay before. Almost because of the aggression <laughs> Absolutely. in it. Beckett's passionate advocacy, not for, you know, yeah. the, the more respectable things that people hoped he would recommend and talk about and discuss, but really leaning into the idea that you need to pay attention to what this man, James Joyce, is doing. And he, he was, you know, star student. His parents wanted him to be an academic. His, his, his dad was a, wanted to say, a very upper middle class Dublin family, came from a, lived in a beautiful house. Um, so there was a lot of expectation. He wasn't like Joyce. He didn't come 
he didn't come from that sort of working class background. You talk about the combative thing. He, he goes in very early to say, must we wring the neck of a certain system in order to stuff it into a contemporary pigeonhole or modify the dimensions of that pigeonhole for the satisfaction of the analogy mongers? Literary criticism is not bookkeeping. Literary criticism is yes. not bookkeeping. Could that should be the the backlisted uh, motto? We should, should go put that from on here. A t-shirt from us. Well, let's go from here and all get it tattooed. And I mean, without going into all the details of this, so the, the other stuff he writes about, which is that the the, the, the Vico, the great uh, 17th, 17th century Italian philosopher, who had the idea of cycles of history were were all interconnected and repeating one another. He uses that to try and explain the schema of, of what Joyce is doing. But uh, there are little bits of, of the Jet Beckett to come. He says, he, when he's, once he's explained Vivico's theory, he said, so much for the dry bones, the consciousness that there is a great deal of the unborn infant in the lifeless octogenarian and a great deal of mm. both in the man at the apogee of his life's curve Ooh, removes all the stiff inter-exclusiveness that is often the danger in neat construction. So... That's You're beginning to see your crap sauce. Type, very, much, very much yeah. there. And then he's, he's amazing about the language in the book. And this is what he says about readers for the, for the book, which is, this is the bit that I think you, you respond to as well. On turning to the work in progress, we find the mirror is not so convex. Here is direct, in, in comparison to Vika, here is direct expression, pages and pages of it. Mm. And if you don't understand it, ladies and gentlemen, it's because you are too decadent to receive it. You are not satisfied <laughs> unless form is so strictly divorced from content that you can comprehend the one almost without bothering to read the other. This rapid skimming and absorption of the scant cream of sense is made possible by what we may call a continuous process of copious intellectual salivation. The form that is an arbitrary and independent phenomenon can fulfill no higher function than that of stimulus for a tertiary or quartery conditional reflex of dribbling comprehension. <laughs> anyway, the point is he's saying that Joyce's language is a lie. This is the, the real thing. He says, he does this gr brilliant thing where he says, lex, a crop of acorns, ilex, tree that produces acorns, ledgere, to gather, aquilex, he that gathers the waters, lex, gathering together of peoples, public assembly, Lex, law, ledgere, to gather together letters into a word to read. So you go from an acorn to reading. And that's, he's saying that's, that's, that's what Joyce is doing. He's, he's taking language back to its roots. Um, and he says, here form is content. Content is form. You complain that this mm. stuff is not written mm. in English. Mm. It is not written at all. Yes. It is not to be read, or rather it is not only to be read. It is to be looked at and listened to. His writing is not about something. It is that something itself, a fact that has been grasped by an eminent novelist and historian whose work is in complete opposition to Mr. Joyce's. When the senses sleep, the words go to sleep. When the sense is dancing, the words dance. Uh, Mr. Joyce's de-sophisticated language, and it's worthwhile remarking that no language is so sophisticated as English. It is abstracted to death. It's a great, punchy little essay in defense of Finnegan's Wake but you're also beginning to see within it, one, Beckett isn't going to be an academic. He's just, he can't, he doesn't want to play that game. And two, this interesting idea of, um, of, of things being recycled and, and of old age and youth. And Well, it will you know. tell you what it reminded me of. It reminded me of, Nick, you're going to be surprised by me saying this. Is it the Beatles? It's Bob Dylan. Oh, <laughs> damn, I got that wrong. Bob Dylan moves to New York from nowhere and pretends to be Woody Guthrie for a while until he gets his, his 
feet until he works out his own voice. And that's kind of what's going on with Beckett there, isn't it? Yeah. He moves from Dublin to Paris and he 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 yes. hangs around with Woody and yeah. until he can sing his own song. Um I, well, I want to ask Nikki what like what did you what did you think you were gonna get when you read Beckett? Well, having been to see Waiting to Godot, I did have a sense of, and I, rem- <laughs> I remember quite clearly, probably like many people who go and see Waiting to Godot with no real kind of understanding of what Beckett's mm. like, thinking, when's stuff going to happen? You know, <laughs> uh, and, and then you kind of, uh, and so I kind of had a sense of that actually it, it wasn't, it wasn't about the plot. It was about the, yeah. the form and it was about the difficult situations and, and what comes out of those. But I still don't kind of feel like I get a sense of this is a Beckett type character or okay, this is a. Yeah. So I'd be really interested to know more about what are the kind of, what are the it's, things, the <laughs> themes that have come up in I, all of these I, plays. I, I, think, I think the thing about reading a load of Beckett it, um, for making this program is he is a brilliant example of. of uh, the artist who is is in a state of becoming, you know, is right. never quite arriving at the inevitable destination. I'll go on, you know, the the idea that how how much the work changes, also how much the the work starts in this incredibly, as we'll hear in a minute, incredibly um, rococo language, uh, this outpouring of words, and then gradually. Begins, begins to dry up as the decades go really? on, moving towards silence, moving towards silence. Nikki, also I'll add, do you know what, um, when asked what Waiting for Godot is about, do you know what Sir Ian McKellen said? Isn't it about nothing twice or something like that? <laughs> no, that it might well be. <laughs> Sir Ian McKellen said, yes, I t- I'll tell you what Waiting for Godot is about. It's about waiting. Yeah, <laughs> and it, and he mean, it wasn't being arch. He was. No, no. He, he said, "It's." He said that he says in in this in wonderful interview. He says, um, "That seems so obvious, but who prior to Beckett had realised it was a common thing within humanity? Yeah. We are all waiting, waiting. for yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. I think for something. I, I mean, we're we're feeling other things. He says at the same time, but you know." What are we? What are we waiting for? Um, and there's one thing: the only certainty of the things we're waiting for is at the end of the, the yeah. path. You know. Okay. Uh, so should we move on? Let's to, move on to the, the next. John, thing. what's our next choice? The next is a collection of ten short stories by Samuel Beckett called "More Pricks Than Kicks," and it was published in 1934 by Chatham and Windus. "More Pricks Than Kicks," uh, this collection of short stories, his first collection of short stories sold in its first several years of um, availability, fewer than 500 copies. You got a and, £25 advance. For and, and, were, and, and most of those were pulped. Yeah. So it's, it's a very rare and valuable book, which Beckett himself was terribly reluctant to allow he, he, to be republished. He, yeah, he, he dismissed it as juvenilia. Um, and in some ways, he's, he, he, maybe he's right in that it is much more, I mean, heavily Joycean than... The, mm. the books that he was to write afterwards. It's, it's definitely, the, the, the stories are all, basically the story arc, his main character is Belacqua Shua. Belacqua was a character from Dante. He was a bit of a feckless 
lute maker in, in Dante. So he takes, he steals that name and you, you follow um, Blackwood as begins as a student and you follow him through, you know, living in kind of student accommodation, you know, bed sits. You, 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 he gets married three times in the course of this collection, very unlike a Beckett character. He is the first, in a way, he's the first Beckett character. The book is full of verbal showing Are Beckett off. Beckett characters Beckett? Um, good question, Nikki. Do you? I mean, I would say you know, ultimately, all 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 are characters. Every every author's characters are them to some degree or other. But do they resemble him? Some more than others. We're going to go to Balakra. Balakra might maybe it is maybe in this one he he uh, upset many family members. He did. Really? Because he, you know, whether it's, it, you know, it's the classic literary thing. <laughs> a man, Beckett, a man who wrote a play called Not I. Yeah. Or uh, Rambo's <laughs> I is another. And you know, the idea that it is you and it isn't you. the fam- but, And yet at the same time, that's fine as an artist. And yet your family members can still be very um, disgruntled and upset that when you've they used them themselves. for things they've written um, without their permission. You know, it's all very well. To go, I'm an artist, you know, but you didn't ask me. Uh, it's you know. it's very smart, Alec. I, mean, you, you, I know you're going to read a bit, a great bit from the first story. The, the bit that everybody remembers is that there is a there's a scene where a lobster is 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 cooked at the end of Dante and the Lobster, and the line, which is you know a kind of what do they call it, foreshadowing line. Um, <laughs> she lifted the lobster clear of the table. It had about thirty seconds to live. Well, thought Balacqua. It's a quick death. God help us. It is not. <laughs> That's a very famous line. Still a great line. So before we hear from our own Billy Whitelaw, uh, Ms. Nikki Birch, who will be performing uh, a short extract from the first story in More Quicks and Kicks, I have to reveal. Now, John, would I be right in thinking that the reason why you selected More Pricks and Kicks is it is a reference to the 1986 LP by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, uh, kicking against the pricks because that LP contains a cover of "By the Time I Get to Phoenix," which is, of course, a song written by Jimmy Webb, whose autobiography I recommended on episode forty-nine. <laughs> uh, that listed on "Look at Me" yeah, yeah. Uh, by Anita Bruckner, and also, of course, a, a link to um, Nina Simone's "Gun" by Warren Ellis, which we also talked about on episode one hundred and fifty-two, which was about. Deadwood by Pete Dexter. Dexter. That was a good book, by the way. Deadwood Very, by that was, was a, a wonderful great book. book. Yeah. Did you enjoy these stories? Um, Enjoyment's probably the wrong word, isn't I, it? I, yeah, well, I'm going to take the, the authorial, uh, Beckett's authorial defence. Beckett thought it was juvenilia. I found some of it very funny. The bit Nikki is going to read, I found very. very funny. But I also found it a bit try-hard. I mean, no, I know one shouldn't say that. It's about Samuel Beckett, but uh, he, he would agree with that, I think. I, I think he would agree with that. I think it's curiously something slightly heartless about, about the yes. story. People don't read them anymore. And I think it's if you want to kind of understand where the later stuff comes from, you can see you wouldn't read this. this indeed, many people didn't. You wouldn't think uh, this guy's going to write Waiting for Godot one day. Well, uh, Nikki is about to uh, read a, a short section from the first story in the collection, which is called Dante and the Lobster, and this is Samuel Beckett's account of making lunch. Lunch, to come off at all, was a very nice affair. If his lunch was to be enjoyable, and it could be very enjoyable indeed, 
he must be left in absolute tranquility to prepare it. But if he were disturbed now, if some brisk tattler were to come bouncing in now, big with a big idea or a petition, he might just as well not eat at all. For the food would turn to bitterness on his palate, or worse again, taste of nothing. He must be left strictly alone. He must have complete quiet and privacy to prepare the food for his lunch. The first thing to do was to lock the door. Now nobody could come at him. He deployed an old herald and smoothed it out on the table. The rather handsome face of McCabe, the assassin, stared up at him. <laughs> then he lit the gas ring and unhooked the square flat toaster, asbestos grill, from its nails and set it precisely on the flame. He found he had to lower the flame. Toast must not on any account be done too rapidly. Hmm. We all agree with that. For bread to be toasted as ought, it's, through and through. It's relatable. <laughs> it must be done on a mild, steady flame. Otherwise, you only charred the outsides and left the pith as sodden as before. If there was one thing he abominated more than another, it was to feel his teeth meet in a bathos of pith and dough. And it was so easy to do the thing properly. So he thought, having regulated the flow and adjusted the grill, by the time I have the bread cut, that it will be just right. Now the long barrel loaf came out of its biscuit tin and had its end evened off on the face of McCabe. Two inexorable drives with the bread saw and a pair of neat rounds of raw bread. The main elements of his meal lay before him, awaiting his pleasure. The stump of the loaf went back into prison. The crumbs, as though there were no such thing as a sparrow in the wide world, were swept in a fever away, and the slices snatched up and carried to the grill. All these preliminaries were very hasty and impersonal. It was now that real skill began to be required. It was at this point that the average person began to make a hash of the entire proceedings. <laughs> he laid his cheek against the soft of the bread. It was spongy and warm, alive. But he would very soon take that plush feel off it. By God, but he would very quickly take that fat white look <laughs> off his face. He lowered the gas of suspicion and plapped one flabby slab plump down on the glowing fabric, but very pat and precise, so that the whole resembled the Japanese flag. Then on top, there not being room for the two to do evenly side by side, and if you did not do them evenly, you might just as well save yourself the trouble of doing them at all. The other round was set to warm. When the first candidate was done, which was only when it was black through and through, it changed places with its comrade, so that now it in its turn lay on the top, done to a dead end, black and smoking, waiting till as much could be said of the other. Oh my God! Nicky Birch, brilliant. Oh my God! Billy White Law would be absolutely incredible. Standing aside for that. Incredible. Amazing. Wow. Hey, Nicky. When we asked you to do this five years ago, I don't think this was on the job description, was no. it? And do you know what? I have to say, that was a really good passage, wasn't it? It, it is, is very funny. This is, I mean, it's yeah. that. Yeah. I have to say, the Dante the Lobster is a, is a great story. I think it's a brilliant story. The, 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 the bit that comes next about the gorgonzola cheese and the Savoy yes, mustard. Yes, it's great. It's, it's a book. Of, it's, a, it's one of the great sandwiches in, 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 <laughs> great <laughs> sandwiches in literature. <laughs> <laughs> but also you can hear, though, can't you as well, that's precocious. The relish so for the language. But it's slightly yeah, yeah. annoying. It's that yeah, it's kind of, look at me, yeah, yeah, look at me do this. He, you know? he just, he, throughout the book, he peppers it with, he, he's always showing, you know, words that you haven't heard before. But it's a young, it's a, you know, he was, he was in his 20s when he wrote it. So we'll, we'll move forward a bit now. Beckett has a difficult but good war. Yes. The Second World War. He, uh, he uh, is a member of the resistance but he also heads to the south of France, to the Roussillon, and spends most of the war there. 
but his war experiences uh, inform what happens to his writing next. And John, I think you've chosen um, yeah, he, one of the more famous ones. But he now. He, he focuses on um, you know his his literary kid. It hardly you know becomes a, a stellar one, but he and he, he spent a long time trying to get the three novels, Malloy. Malone dies, and finally, the unnameable published. Um, he f- finally does get them published in uh, in the uh, in the early fifties. In fact, unnameable is pub- I think it's published in the same year, nineteen fifty three, as as Godot. Mm-hmm. Is, is, um, Not only that, within months, yeah. And it, again, it, I think it sold about five hundred copies. It wasn't a, it wasn't a massive yeah. success. What it is is seen as in in Beck- Beckett's development is that the Beckett character often alone, often in the dark, often with this existential uh, battle of wanting to say something, but then not really wanting to say something, wanting to go on, but not wanting to go on. Uh, I mean, in a way, he felt that there was a blockage that he he got to in his work, in his fiction with the unnameable, which is, you know, essentially like, it's like one very, very long kind of paragraph, really. You know, there's a brief introduction and then you've got pages and pages of, and it is, you're not quite sure what, who the character is. Is it on, you know, does it have a body? It seems to be curled up at one moment. It's in a jar. It's, there's a, there's a, there's a, another character called Mahood, another character called, um, as always, Madeleine, who loves his M characters. He, he kind of seems to claim that maybe he was the author of Malone Dies and Malloy. It's like a, it's like, Nikki, it's like Russian dolls or. Yeah. A box within a box within a box. Is this when he first started to be? Do you think his brilliance came out? Yes, uh, uh, for me, it's the it's the breakthrough into using language in a new way. Famously, in 1946, he goes back to Dublin, and the story, which actually reappears, is this when his mum is sick. His mum is sick, and his his dad has died, and he has a he has a sort of an experience at the end of Dunleary Pier. It turns out he wasn't really on Dunleary Pier; he was at home when he had this experience. But something something strikes him that he's been he's been going wrong in his work. He needs to he needs to sort of move beyond the Joycean showing off, and that's when he goes back to Paris and he starts to write in French. Right. Completely. So this has tr- been written in French. So the, all three of these novels, in fact, right. pretty much all of his work from the the, the, the late forties onwards, uh, was written first in French. And uh, you know, Godot famously. Um, not one of the ones, two of the next ones we're talking about, which is interesting, but this this was definitely, mm. and it's seen, and his English translation caused him great, it was, he found it very difficult to translate this book into English. Well, I'm going to um, read a little bit of The Unnameable. Before I do that, I'm going to draw your attention to why I think John chose it in relation to Excellent. that message. <laughs> the reason why John chose The Unnameable is in an act of charity to his friend and co-host, Andy Miller, because it's a, it links to every single episode of Backlisted in which I introduce myself as the author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because I read this book as one of the 50 books that I read for The Year of Reading Dangerously. And uh, in that book, I I describe my unsuccessful first attempt, which is to try and read it on the page on a commuter train going in and out of London every day. It was very... I had to try and block out the rest of the carriage. So I used to... (laughs) I used to listen to um, things like metal machine music on my on my iPod. Whilst reading Samuel Beckett. In a, in a bid to kind of just right. get white noise to, 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 to have the space in my head to read the prose. And I, it wasn't very successful. I didn't, really get, I didn't really get it at all. 
And um, and then I thought, okay, well, what I'll do is I'll 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 get the audio book and I'll listen to the audio book. And um, what I decided I'd do, I'd, I'd try and listen to it in one go. Great. And th- this is me from the year of reading dangerously at the point in which I um, actually went and did this. It's so strange to read this on the page because I did actually go and do this anyway. On a Sunday morning before Christmas, I caught a train into town and took the bus to Primrose Hill. Climbing to the top, I could see the post office tower, the Snowden aviary, and a man shaking his fist at someone who was both much taller than him and invisible. It was still early. I planned to walk across the city, down the Euston Road, paying my respects at the Midnight Bell or a few pubs like it, because I just read 20,000 Streets and the sky, everyone, <laughs> through the West End and along the river to Hammersmith or beyond. It was going to take me all day to say goodbye. For company, I had Samuel Beckett. On my iPod was an audiobook of The Unnameable, read by the actor Sean Barrett. The book ran just under six hours, long enough to carry me from Primrose Hill to Hammersmith. Perhaps it was cheating to listen to something the author intended to be read, but print on paper had not got me very far. I was going to try an alternative route. As I set off past the zoo and the roundhouse, along Camden High Street, past where all the record shops used to be, past the market and the Odeon Cinema on Parkway, Beckett's words murmured in my ear. They drifted around me, catching my attention, retreating, returning, insinuating themselves into my train of thought. I came here a lot once. We saw Blur at the electric ballroom. Compendium, the bookshop, was over there. Burroughs and Bukowski tapes. Gone now. The Oxford Arms. That was where I saw Glenn Richardson perform his Todd Carty musical. Or was it an opera? On second thoughts, maybe that was the Hen and Chickens. It was all a long time ago. Some may complain that they cannot understand the unnameable. Beckett's publisher and champion John Calder has written. But they should ask themselves how well they understand not only their own lives, but what they see when they look out at the world, how they interpret what they see, little of which could be understood anyway, and especially how they think themselves, what makes them think, what they think about and why, and how they separate what they know from everyday events from what they know from dreams. As I walked from Camden onwards, letting the unnameable spool, I traversed not one but three places called London, the city I had lived in for so long, Patrick Hamilton's 20,000 streets still humming in my mind, and this unreal city, shaped by memory and daydreams and Beckett's unravelling commentary. After a couple of miles, I had to sit down, not from fatigue, but because I was overwhelmed by what I was experiencing. In a pub I did not recognise, somewhere in limbo, I sat and nursed a pint and listened to this. I hope this preamble will soon come to an end and the statement begin that will dispose of me. Unfortunately, I am afraid, as always, of going on. For to go on means going from here, means finding me, losing me, vanishing and beginning again. A stranger first, then little by little the same as always in another place, where I shall say I have always been, of which I shall know nothing, being incapable of seeing, moving, thinking, speaking, 
but of which little by little, in spite of these handicaps, I shall begin to know something, just enough for it to turn out to be the same place as always, the same which seems made for me and does not want me, which I seem to want and do not want. Take your choice, which spews me out or swallows me up, I'll never know, which is perhaps merely the inside of my distant skull where once I wandered, now am fixed, lost for tininess, or straining against the walls with my head, my hands, my feet, my back, and ever murmuring my old stories, my old story as if it were the first time. So there is nothing to be afraid of. And yet I am afraid, afraid of what my words will do to me, to my refuge yet again. Is there really nothing new to try? Amazing. It is amazing. Brilliantly wow. read as well, Andy. Beautiful. I, 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 it's, a, it's a very strange the feeling. The context of that was really useful as yeah. well. Right. It's really interesting. You know, the, the thing Calder says there, I remember when I was putting this chapter together, is that, that brilliant observation. Think to yourself, how well do you actually know the reality of what you perceive? And if you if you're not certain, what is contained in the uncertainty? That's sort of what he's writing about there, I think. I mean, it's the stripping away of everything, of plot, of, of agency, of other characters. You know, it's, there is no narrative in this book. But what there is, is this extraordinary language. It's complete. I, it, and the bit of the Harold Pinter that you heard right at the beginning of the podcast was him. That was the very end of the novel. The famous, I'll go on. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hard to believe I was ever that young. Well, the voice, Jesus, and the aspirations, <laughs> and the resolutions <laughs> to drink less in particular. <laughs> Statistics, 1,700 hours out of the preceding 8,000 odd consumed on licensed premises alone, more than 20%, say 40% of his waking life. Plans for a less engrossing sexual life. Last illness of his father, flagging pursuit of happiness, unattainable laxation, sneers at what he calls his youth, and thanks to God it's over. All swing there, huh? Shadows of the opus magna. Closing with the <laughs> yet to providence. 
What remains of all that misery? A girl in a shabby green coat on a railway station platform? No? Okay. Welcome back, everybody. Now, I don't know why John Mitchinson would choose for Backlisted this episode uh, uh, a text in which an old man rakes through recordings from his past. <laughs> I don't know what, what he was thinking, but that is the, an excerpt from Crap's Last Tape by Samuel Beckett, performed by Patrick McGee, the actor for whom that piece was written. Yeah. Um, it is my favourite thing by Beckett. Perhaps last tape. I'm so happy that you chose it, John. It is my favourite thing by Beckett, and I can prove I've got my like the 18 year old undergraduate me. Incredible. Uh, oh my goodness. Here is, here is my essay, which is called "The Things to Say About Crap's Last Tape." That's what I called it. And then um, under, you, you know what? And you, underneath, you should have taped this so you could we could play it back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've got underneath. It says literature is like phosphorus. It shines with its maximum brilliance when it attempts to die. Roland Barthes, writing degree zero, 1953. Which it's like, that was the year I, not only did I, was I obsessed with Beckett, that was the year I also read Roland Barthes for the first time. So, And what quite, did your teacher say about this essay? Well, <clears throat> she said, this is so embarrassing. This is embarrassing. Oh, no, please. But <laughs> if, since you asked me, <laughs> she said, how could I impose a mark on such intelligent and artistic creativity in A plus or what go down on the books? This is a delight to perceive, as the remark in the play goes. I hope you'll m- manage such heights in the exam, John. <laughs> Which, I don't know, I think I, I, I I've got to tell listeners that John is hugging the tape player and crying while, <laughs> he, while he listens to himself read that. I love the fact that you still have your English essay from... Oh, AC. that's amazing. Beautiful. I want to... Be, come on, I want, John, we'll, we'll each take turn. You, you go last. Yeah. But I want to start with Nikki now. I know you'd never seen this before. Yeah. And there are several incredible performances of Crap's Last Tape available now on YouTube. If you want to see McGee, for whom it was written, perform it. There's a wonderful um, BBC production from the early 1970s. If you want to see the playwright Harold Pinter perform Crap's Last Tape very near the end of his life, that is very In a wheelchair. Mo- very yeah, moving, very moving, very powerful. And if you want to see John Hurt, the late John Hurt, filmed 2000, 2001, that's on YouTube, and that is the version I recommended to you because I think that's my favourite. Um, ha- what did you make of it? Yeah, I thought it was actually incredible. That was incredible, isn't it? As a as a premise as well as it made me just think, fucking hell, he's a good actor. You know, like, that was like the first <laughs> oh, thing. Yes, like, that was a real. Sort of, I don't know, he really can act. Yeah, but you, but but but, but, no, but also just that just for those. You, if anyone doesn't know it, who are like me, uh, a, a novice, um, the premise of uh, an old man listening back is on his birthday, mm-hmm. listening back to where uh, to tapes that he's made, recordings of himself previously made on his birthday. Because like it feels like that an annual thing that he does. He makes these tapes and looks back, and then he's making a new one. That yeah, and he every time he 
he seems to sort of be more and more bitter and he's listening mm. back to these tapes. And sometimes he's listening back to tapes that, where he's listening back to old tapes, yeah. Yeah. And which is such a clever premise. And, uh, and, I, and as, a sort of, as a sort of podcast editor, I'm so interested in this because, <laughs> no, because quite often you hear these brilliant podcasts where they're having to think about how you bring in tape. And, and how you bring in, uh, like, they have to come up with formats and form where you're having to bring in old tape. And this is actually the sort of perfect example of one that, is, and, that he's done. And that la- hearing him laugh along with his, his past self. Yeah. Um, you know, all of Beckett's about creating company for himself. Right. You know, the characters are always creating there's company. There's three characters in this, yeah. isn't there? Yeah, you yeah. know, there's himself and now mm. himself before and himself even earlier. And he kind of, he seems to be... Um, this sort of hilariously another bitter author kind of reflecting books on an unsuccessful books. life. You know. It's about books. Sold, sold 11 copies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> circulating library. But he also, he feels like he, he shouldn't be listening to these tapes, but he does. He's like, I know I shouldn't oh, do well, this. He's like everybody and everybody who watches, you know, videos now of, of things that they've, of their lost girlfriends or yeah. their old, you know, it's it's that, it's addictive behaviour. He keeps. I, well, look, I was, I was watching the, I watched like three or four versions of this on the, on, on successive days. And then stumbled over a tweet of mine from three or four years ago and looked at it and thought, I don't remember writing. I don't remember the things that happened in that. Suddenly we've all built these little archives of ourselves, like Raps Last Eight, like, you know. I found it so interesting because he's listening to them, knowing that it's painful listening to them, and yet making another recording, knowing that at some point he might listen to that and that's going to be painful. It's like make he knows it's going to be awful. Yeah. I, I the thing I found watching them again, particularly. I think actually the reason why I like Hurt's performance so much, Beckett wrote Crap's Last Tape inspired by Patrick McGee's cracked voice, he yeah. said. So he, he, he wrote it because he wanted to hear McGee's voice say those yeah. words yeah. Those, and, and contrast the, the man in his pomp, in his prime, with the, with the more decrepit. Uh, individual. But actually the great gift of Crap's Last Tape that Beckett gives to any actor who plays it is how much of the time they say nothing. They are listening Listening and reacting and telling you how to feel about what you're hearing. And and when you watch McGee, there's these incredible close-ups of his, you know, very sweating and he's yeah. he's he's clearly traumatized by it whereas whereas hurt gives off this different sense of the aging man yeah. he seems bewildered to me this sense of being lost he's lost in whatever space yeah. uh, apparently gambon was amazing as cat crap and, was I, and also like max, max, max wall was another was another but i i think that the that the pathos is the pathos is the thing that is so overwhelming. Um, and the end of the play, which the 18-year-old me said, at the end of the play, um, at the end of his last tape, its silence becomes audible. It flows on passively like time. Thus, paradoxically, the darkness exists only as an absence of light. Silence is an absence of sound and solitude as absence of company. By venturing into the dark, crap is made aware of his light. By speaking, he realizes silence. And by devising company, acknowledges that he is alone. Crap is alone. The dust is his. 
And what do you think of that 18-year-old self's quote now? I mean, it's pretty good. <laughs> it's quite a bit, you know, it's a bit pretentious, but I mean, you know. It's pretty good. I mean, it's very good, John. Come on. I think I, I that, love this, but I love this yeah, play yeah. more more than almost any other. That and you know, you know, what's that thing we used to have where you have Rachel and I always say, not with the fire in me now. That's just one of you know, that's yeah, one of our lines. Okay, yeah, yeah. So yeah, say what yeah, you yeah, do, no, with not with the fire in me now. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, you mean phrases one just yeah. says around yeah. the house. Yeah. <laughs> I bought it for you as an independent candidate. Exactly. That's yeah. it. Just drop a big yeah. phrase. Not with um, not with the fire in me now. So I've got a few little clips um from uh, our, I thought it might uh, be time for a quiz. So yeah, it's definitely quiz time. I've got a few clips from our archive. <laughs> Um, <laughs> things that we didn't record on our birthday. That's but young assume, whelp. Yes, let's pretend it was our birthday, uh, given it's going to be... Um, what, the and what, what's the quiz element, please? The quiz is, I have got um, a few clips of you guys talking about books um, from the backlisted archive, and you're going to oh, listen no. to yourself, and you're going to try and work out what book you're talking about. Oh, no. Okay? Yeah. Right. This is, okay. this is too. This is too meta. Oh, go on. This could be really tricky. Go on. This is clip one. Also, you would have to say, but that because this is this was her first novel, it's sort of it's held together not by craft, though there is craft in it, hmm. but just her talent. It's held together by her energy and her talent. Any uh, thoughts on that? We are literally, we look, Andy and I are looking at each other with no idea. Luckily, I have another clip to help you out on that one. Really? Yeah. Okay. Is it the same It's the same, the same, the same one. Yeah. It's a little bit, making it a little bit easier. She manages to do that thing, again, I think through force of personality, really, of telling you a story where you want, you want to know what happens next. Okay, well, that's what you want from a novel. But also being very thoughtful, philosophically thoughtful, and... Also being quite weird, and as we said, the, the novel takes a very peculiar twist at the halfway point. Also funny. I mean, it's so funny. It's so brilliantly turned yeah, in terms of phrase for phrase. It's Lolly Willows by Sylvia Townsend. It Warner. is Lolly Willows yeah. by Sylvia. Whoa, well thank Good. you, John. Well done. Save my okay. Blushes. Okay, are you ready for question two? Okay, go on. Douglas Adams' description of Woodhouse as Woodhouse, as pure word music. Mm. And at, the, at her best, you can feel her when she writes, getting into kind of that kind of flow where the words are beginning to form this beautiful light kind of andante uh, of humour, humour and intelligence kind of pushing Great. the thing along. I'm like Patrick McGee sweating at this point. <laughs> Traumatised by this. Uh, I'm going to say... Because we don't listen back to the show. I, 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 oh, Shall I play another one for that? Go on. Yeah. yeah, go on. She has a positive moral message to make about the, the value of sex and about the value of relationships and the importance of kindness and the importance of love in relationships. And that to be in her world is a very comforting and reassuring. She's, she's a really good author to read at times of stress. <laughs> the clue there is she's a really good author to read in times of stress. stress. There was a really moving discussion that we had about this, about an author who can talk about sex, but also in times of stress. Elizabeth Jane Howard? No. Nope. Hey, I... With a Cambridge professor 
Jilly Cooper. Yeah. It's Jilly oh, Cooper. Of course it's Jilly Cooper. Cooper. Okay. Pure word music. Yeah. Well yeah. done, Andy Miller. Okay, one more. We always say this on Backlisted when it's true, and in this case it is true rather than the ecstatic truth. It's the actual truth. This isn't like any other book. No. Most books are like other books, but this one isn't. And that in itself is it's, a reason for reading it's, it. It's like a kind of trippy fairy tale. <laughs> Like a trippy fairy tale. <laughs> is it? Is it Kate's daughter Barbara Cummings? No, it's not. <laughs> I think it's so brilliant. <laughs> you created the Bicketian loop. You have, Nikki, you have. Where you've got me saying we say this all the time on book, <laughs> on Batlist. This is a book that's not like other books. Oh, <laughs> a phrase I've used over and over again. No. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't got another clip for that. But I, all I can say is I'll give you a little. Clue. Sorry, it's it's one of John's best impressions. Oh, it's one of John's best impressions. Oh no, and it's a, it's a, it's a it's a it's book a, by a woman. It's not a book by a woman. I tell you what, that makes me think of. It makes me think of John's reading from Alverton yeah, live on stage at End of the Road, good. which was one of the most amazing things he's ever done. Is it trippy though? Trippy, trippy. So I'm going to tell you, it's Werner Herzog. Oh, Oh, no. I was end of the road. I was just one. That was, oh, no. That was very close. Oh, same festival. Isn't there a new, um, uh, very much, there is a new um, book. A novel, I think. No, not a no, novel, a memoir. A memoir. memoir. Uh, I think it's a, a memoir. You know, which we are looking forward to greatly on back. Just... <laughs> um, right. We better crack on, guys. We're going to get kicked out. Oh, of okay, 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 okay. I mean, so, John, what have you set up for us as the final text? The final, the final text I have set up is Company, which is was published in 1980. And the reason I chose this was that I was at university, writing this essay in 1981. And the idea of a new book, he hadn't written a a work of fiction novel for something like 20 years. And it was that amazing feeling, thinking, oh my God, like you're saying about Bob Dylan on stage. Samuel Beckett is out there somewhere, still writing. (laughs) I mean, you know, this great, this man who knew Joyce, this great 20th century Nobel Prize. It's the 80s. He's he's still there. He was a very handsome old man as far as I know. For a a recluse, he was a gentleman of whom there is a thousands of photographs I know. looking <laughs> great. <laughs> You've seen the, the, the sexy shots in Tangiers when he was yes. on holiday. Yeah. And you know there's a film, there's a film just released today, it's the 3rd of November, which is about, uh, he lived with um, Suzanne, his partner, but he did have an affair with his translator, Barbara Bray. Um, and the, book, the film apparently is giving him the full Hollywood treatment. You know, he's a hero of the resistance and he's got, you know, women fighting over... I can't imagine. Gabriel Byrne plays back better. I'm kind of intrigued to see what yeah, they've done. Let's with it. go and see it. We should. Yeah, we should go from this. But place. Company is a apps, and Company was written in English, as Crap's last tape was, which was very, almost nothing he wrote towards the end of his life was written in English. And it is another book where he revisits his childhood, he revisits his, the, the, the death of his mother his, his, and, and his father. It's, it's really beautiful, a, a complex book, but I mean, one of my, again, I think with with crap, it's right up there. Well, I I assumed that you had chosen 
company because it's, of course, the name of um, one of Stephen Sondheim's finest musicals. And in fact, the Sondheim musical is not based on the, on the Beckett uh, novella. And we covered Sondheim's books in episode 155 in 2022. Uh, but also, I wondered, John, sentimentally, whether you had chosen company because perhaps the nicest thing, I think, the three of us making about this in the last eight years is how much we have enjoyed one another's company, mm-hmm. talking about books, particularly during the period of the pandemic. I know I can say that those recordings we made at the, during the darkest times uh, uh, of COVID were so important to me Completely. To feel a connection yeah. to the world and talk about something else and not be frightened for an hour or two. Um, and so when you recommended company, I, I was thinking I had that idea in my head. And I'd never read this before. Yeah. I, it, it, it's, in, it's incredible. Yeah. It's one of those times you think, oh, yeah, okay. This, this amazing book, this short book, which we think of as late work by the famous yeah. writer Samuel Beckett, is actually an extraordinary... You, you need know nothing about Beckett. Completely. Nothing about Beckett's life in, in the terms we've described it, to pick this up, read it, be deeply moved by it. The contrast between the prose in this, John, and the prose Nicky read so adeptly from... Um, more kicks than pricks. Yeah. You know, the move into towards silence and Beckett using rhythm and repetition yeah. and plain speaking. I, I, I really, I found it tremendously moving. So thank you very, very much. Thank well, you so much. I'm pleased that there, there is just a, 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 a note of lyricism, which I think kind of connects back to that lyricism that, that, that is in, in crap as well. And I, I would say on the company thing, I think, yeah, I mean, you know, Beckett is all about whatever else is left. We always create another. We always create, we always, whether it's a take, a voice on a take or our own voice or our memories, we have, we have to, you know, human beings do not exist, cannot exist in a vacuum. And no writer has pursued that thought more kind of courageously and relentlessly than Beckett. But I just, I think this is, of all the late Beckett works, this is the one I go back to. Do you want me to read a little bit? Yes, please. You take pity on a hedgehog out in the cold and put it in an old hat box with some worms. This box with the hog inside, you then place in a disused hutch, wedging the door open for the poor creature to come out and go at will, to go in search of food and have not eaten to regain the warmth and security of its box in the hutch. There then is the hedgehog in its box in the hutch with enough worms to tide it over. A last look to make sure all as it should be before taking yourself off to look for something else to pass the time, heavy already on your hands at that tender age. The glow at your good deed is slower than usual to cool and fade. You glowed readily in those days, but seldom for long. Hardly had the glow been kindled by some good deed on your part or by some little triumph over your rivals by a word of praise from your parents or mentors when it would begin to cool and fade, leaving you in a very short time as chill and dim as before, even in those days. 
but not this day. It wasn't an autumn afternoon you found the hedgehog and took pity on it in the way described, and you were still the better for it when your bedtime came. Kneeling at your bedside, you included in it the hedgehog in your detailed prayer to God to bless all you love. And tossing in your warm bed, waiting for sleep to come, you were still faintly glowing at the thought of what a fortunate hedgehog it was to have crossed your path as it did. A narrow clay path, edged with sear box edging. As you stood there, wondering how best to pass the time till bedtime, it parted the edging on one side and was making straight for the edging on the other when you entered its life. Now, the next morning, not only was the glow spent, but a great uneasiness had taken its place, a suspicion that all was perhaps not as it should be. That rather do as you did, you had perhaps better let good alone and the hedgehog pursue its way. Days, if not weeks, passed before you could bring yourself to return to the hutch. You've never forgotten what you found there. You were on your back in the dark and have never forgotten what you found then. The mush, the stench. And now the tape has run out. <laughs> We'd love to go on, but there is no more time. Thank you for listening. If you want show notes with clips, links, and suggestions for further reading for this show, and the 198 that we've already recorded, please visit our website at batlisted.fm. If you want to buy the books discussed, you can, of course, visit our shop at bookshop.org and choose Batlisted as your bookshop. And we're still keen to hear from you on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Blue Sky, Threads, Pigeon Posts, <laughs> however you can reach us, uh, please real surreal. go. Real to real. You want to hear backlisted early and without ads? Subscribe to our Patreon. www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. Your subscription brings other benefits. You subscribe at the lot listener level for the price of a bunch of fair trade bananas. You'll get not one, but two extra exclusive <laughs> podcasts every month. We call it Lock Listed because it began in the When Lock Tavern just before lockdown and it features the three of us talking and recommending the books, films and music we've enjoyed oh, in the previous fortnight. For those of you who enjoy our What Have You Been Reading slot, that's where you'll now find it. Plus, lot listeners get their names read out, accompanied by lashings of thanks and gratitude like this. Philip Hill. Thank you. Martine. Harry Hornby. Peter Office. And Stephen Marsden. Oh, there's some more. Robert Selkov, thank you so much. Bill W. Thank you, Bill W. Mark O'Neill. Rachel Wensley. And thank you very much, Chris Forston. Thank you, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much. John, that was one of the most incredible readings and um, we're all very moved sitting here in the studio. So there you go. Also, John's very ill. Hopefully that won't be the last time you hear from him. Uh, That would be a terrible... (laughs) Not with the fire in me now. Don't go. Not with the fire in me now, Andy. So that's what I want to say. This has just been, uh, this has been a gift. This whole podcast is a gift in our lives and this show has been wonderful. Thank you so much, both of you. Nikki. I just want to thank you for introducing me to and making me kind of come on board because I just wouldn't you were, you were You were really windy earlier, (laughs) weren't you? You were, you, you were, re- but it, it hasn't it been amazing? It's been fantastic. And I think, you know, it's just that whole thing about enthusiasm brings people with you. And you've done that mm, with me. So mm. thank you so much. Beautiful. 
John Mitchinson. Uh, well, the last thing I wanted to say, I just wanted to share a little thing. When I left Waterstones, just to show, they bought me uh, a little edition minuit of Beckett's Cette Fois, and it is a um, little signed, signed by <gasps> Sam himself. He's in the room with us now. Wow, um, what an incredible thing. Sam so Beckett. It says Sam Beckett. It does indeed. Little Sam Beckett. So they're one of my most precious books. So Wonderful. Um, uh, and I think we're going to, we, obviously the next one is the big one, 200. Uh, we're going to sign off, but we are going to leave you with a little bit of, um, yeah, a little bit of Sam. So thanks all for listening. We'll see you next time. 200th show. See you in a fortnight. And uh, well, I just said he was in the room. Let's, let's listen to the tape. Let's, let's, let's hug the tape recorder. This and listen. Sam, Samuel Beckett himself. Very rare recording of him reading from his, um, his, his novel, What? The poem. What will not abase one just, but of what? Of the coming to, of the being at, of the going from, not habitat. Of the long way, of the short stay, of the going back home, the way he had come. Of the empty heart, of the empty hands, of the dim mind wayfaring through barren lands. Of a flame with dark winds hedged about, going out, gone out. Of the empty heart, of the empty hands, of the dark mind stumbling through barren lands. That is of what, what will not abase one toss.